Welcome to a new episode of Forward, a podcast where we meet researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm your host, Alison Innes. Welcome to the first of several special episodes of Forward that we're calling Unabridged. In these episodes, we'll be bringing you the full conversation I had with one of our researchers. This episode, you'll hear my full conversation with Dr. Jason Black, Fulbright researcher with the Centre for Canadian Studies earlier this year. We wanted to bring you this conversation because Jason explains important concepts that come up in many academic disciplines and popular media, such as coloniality, decolonization, and identity. He shares how he became interested in activism and the Indigenous mascot controversy, why the language and imagery we use to talk about Indigenous issues matters, and how non-Indigenous folks can engage with these issues. Enjoy. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Jason Black, the 2020 Fulbright Research Chair in Transnational Studies with the Centre for Canadian Studies at Brock. Dr. Black is visiting us from the Department of Communication Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where he is a professor and the chairperson. He holds a PhD in rhetorical studies from the University of Maryland and has researched and published extensively on rhetoric and discourse around LGBTQ and Indigenous activist movements. His most recent publications include Mascot Nation, the Controversy Over Native American Representations in Sports, co-authored with Andrew Billings, and Decolonizing Native American Rhetoric, Communicating Self-Determination. While at Brock, he is teaching Canadian Studies course 3V92, Social Activism and Culture in Canada and the, and the United States. So welcome. Thank you very much, Alison. I appreciate being on. So you're the Fulbright Research Chair in Transnational Studies. Um, what does that mean <laughs> for those unfamiliar with the term? Sure. So Fulbright is an international program of scholarly exchange, and it involves graduate students and faculty. There are a number of nations across the world that engage in this, and Fulbright Canada has an express exchange with U.S. faculty members. And so any of us who are doing work in Canadian culture or in American culture with a comparative edge or a comparative twist, especially tied to North American issues and borders, um, we, we have a chance to engage in this kind of um, scholarship and exchange. And so the Fulbright is kind of tripartite. There are three parts to it. And the first is that there's a research project that's brought to a host university. So work I've been doing in mascot culture, I was able to come up with a project, bring it to Brock, and allow that project to unfold in a space that you know, where the topic is tied. Then there's the teaching component, which is really exciting. And oftentimes when you're researching, you don't really want to think about teaching because you are invested in, in your own mind, actually, in your own you know, intellectual property. But teaching at Brock has been incredible because, as you mentioned in the intro, I have a social activism course to teach, which ties directly with my training, my past teaching, and my project. So there's the teaching component as well. And then my favorite component, and I'm learning this more and more, I've been here for about six weeks now, and I have enjoyed the third part, which is the ambassadorial part. So that is representing my home institution, representing the United States, to Brock, to the province, to the larger nation as a whole in Canada. Um, and then also taking that taking what I learn in the, in the relationships I make back to the states with me. And so I've been able to talk to community activists and professors and students, not just uh, involving indigenous issues and topics, but academia as a whole and activism as a whole. And so that exchange of information 
has been incredible. So the Fulbright to me means um, engaging in those three things actively, not passively for sure. Being able to test out ideas with Canadian audiences. Um, I gave a lecture yesterday to a sports management course dealing in the Florida State University Seminole mascot. And some First Nations and Metis folks were there too, right? And so I got to test out ideas in a culture where I'm a guest, right? In, mm -hmm. in multiple ways. That's fantastic. And actually sharing space with people is something that we always kind of say, hey, you know, in an age of digitization and um, almost disembodied communication, mm -hmm. oh, face-to-face -face is so fantastic. We say it theoretically, and I, and I feel that way. But until being in a space, you actually live that kind of theoretical, hey, isn't it great to actually talk to a live person, you know, in the flesh? So the, the idea of relationships being built in connection with people, right? I could do work across email. I could do work across text and phone. But there's something about sitting across a table from someone, right? It's, it's fantastic. Well, we're very glad to have you sitting across the table from, from us today. Um, and you're here at a really interesting time um, as well. Um, we had a conversation not so long ago about the Kansas City Chiefs um, being in the Super Bowl. And there are interesting things happening in the Indigenous community um, I didn't run this question past you, um, but I would be interested to hear, um, as we're recording this, there's the developing story around the Wet'suwet'en uh, and the pipeline protests. Right. Um, what's your perspective on that from as, an, as a non-Canadian, but somebody who is uh, trained in these kinds of issues? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, you want to say this is unfortunate that we're still working through issues regarding environmental justice and indigenous nations, especially in a country like Canada, who has this public imaginary and a reputation of being so incredibly woke, so incredibly progressive. And so on the one hand, um, there's sort of the, the disappointment and there's some shame attached to the fact that a pipeline is still being built after decades of reform, of course, and then reform turned back and in activism. On the other hand, it's enlivening to see people getting together in the same way that folks in the United States did over the no dapple Dakota Access Pipeline protest back in 2016 and 17 did. Mm -hmm. People getting together in a collective to not just fight back against a top-down power, whether it's a capitalist power or a governmental power, that's, that's a reaction. If we framed it that way, activists are just reacting. Um, but building community is what's really going on in the midst of things like pro social protest, right, and movement. And so I'm, I'm looking at this as, wow, this is really eye-opening being in Canada and seeing that the same types of issues are going on across borders, which reminds you that borders are human-made. Mm -hmm. They're rhetorical. There are lines drawn on a map after warfare against indigenous folks and other European powers, right? Um, so it's eye-opening in that way, and it's also eye-opening and heartening to see people get together and listen, so the, the pipeline issue and the violence against protesters is happening all the way west. I mean, almost as far west as you can get, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yet, what we're seeing this week is the disruption of the Via train line between Toronto, the largest city, right? Um, kind of the, the, I hate to compare it to the United States, but kind of the New York of, of Canada, right? Like the epicenter of industry, epicenter of banking, epicenter, right? all the way through to Ottawa, which is the epicenter of the government, and to Montreal, which is the epicenter of, you know, Franco-Canadian culture and history. 
And so, you know, there's a disruption of the line all the way in the east. And I sort of pause to call it a disruption because, um, yes, a train line is being impeded as protesters in the east stand in solidarity, indigenous and non-indigenous folks alike, stand in solidarity with brothers and sisters and two-spirit folks across the expanse of five times, six time zones, right? Um, well, four, but okay. Um, but it's not a disruption. It's, it's community activism more than that. So I, it's hard to call it a disruption. But it's heartening to see that people are standing in solidarity, not just allyship. Allyship is a bumper sticker, right? Mm -hmm. T-shirt. It's accompliceship. People putting their bodies on the line, reputations on the line, uh, lives on the line, economics on the line, family on the line. And so it's been really interesting to see that unfold as I'm here. I mean, this has happened in the past few weeks. Just before we started recording, we were talking about some other um, examples from from history. And to me, as someone who's not an expert um, in in the topic, it, it feels a little different this time around. Like we've we've been here as as a country before. Um, we mentioned Oka, we mentioned the Dudley George um, incident in Ontario. Um, it feels a little different because of the rhetoric around truth and reconciliation. Um, do you have any thoughts about how that might shape things differently this time? Sure, absolutely. I think you're right. And I'm relatively new to Canadian history, Canadian politics. So I've studied uh, from afar, literally from afar, and intellectually from a distance, a space of sort of intellectual understanding and in public understanding. Um, but as I think more about truth and reconciliation, and I've read the volumes, actually, and probably, you know, one of yeah. few Americans yeah. maybe who have, who have read every single volume, I keep a summary with me. And I actually, in my backpack next to me, have a little guide that <laughs> gives gives me a sense of the calls to action just so I can always have them handy. It's nice to have. It's, it's, it's powerful. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right that in the wake of the commission report, the recommendations, that it's, it's a little bit of a different politic, right? Because there's actually some public ethos, there's governmental ethos, there's years of indigenous voice that have been merged into one document that's created a larger blueprint for moving forward. And my understanding of truth and reconciliation as a, as a policy, I think we can call it a policy really, is that philosophically and theoretically it's set up in beautiful ways. And now the complication is how to unroll that, like how to roll that out in operational ways. Mm -hmm. And the protests we're seeing uh, are testing that. They're pushing on, okay, we've done this work. We've invested this, these resources, human resources. Uh, we've asked people to rehash their histories and their traumas. Um, and in the, in the name of that, right, in the name of that humanity, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. um, reminds me of theorist Stuart Hall who said, you know, in the, in the face of people dying in the streets, what do we do with activism and cultural studies? Theory's letting us off the hook if we're not out there. So anyway, I think that, I think you're right. There's a different verve to it and a different vibe that there's some ethos. And it's not even in a back pocket. There's ethos worn across the body that says essentially it's time for manifest change here, mm -hmm. right? With with the TRC especially. Yeah. Um, as we have a, as a culture and certainly within the university as well have 
begun to engage and grapple with these issues of truth and reconciliation. One, one word that comes up a lot, and it's come up in, um, in, in your work as well, is the idea of decolonization. And it's a, so it's a term we hear a lot, but I'm not sure if it's one that we ever really hear explained out for us. Right, right. So what do we mean with this idea of decolonization? Sure. Um, it's a complicated term, and it's complicated in a number of different ways. I mean, there are intellectual, there are academic definitions, which, um, which a lot of us write about. Academic definitions are always contested, and they're contested because they're also public definitions. And there are multitudes of publics who engage in something like a policy or a practice of decolonization. Feeds back into the scholarship, and so there are kind of debates about what it means. For me, if I were describing this as I do to my students, and, and, they, and they give me a Mobius strip back <laughs> feedback loop, um, the way I describe it is that decolonization is an antidote to colonization. And so I don't, I hate to have to start with colonization, but we kind of have to get a sense for what decolonization is responding to. And colonization is the historical and contemporary control of land, labor, bodies, cultures, and symbolism of typically marginalized people. Um, in a colonial setting over time, right? And so colonization are the acts themselves, is how I sort of frame this. So colonization are the acts. The more insidious part is coloniality, because that's more of an ideology. It's a superstructure or moving sidewalk that allows colonization as acts to move forward. And so oftentimes, at least in the States, people will say, well, you know, Native Americans run reservations and they have casinos and tax breaks and they can sell cigarettes, you know, a buck a pack or whatever it is. Um, racism is over, right? Anti-Indianism in the United States is over. Well, that's not necessarily the case because coloniality is still pulled through. Um, not only are acts taking place, but the overall um, feeling and philosophy and ideology of of coloniality is going on. And then decolonization and decoloniality is the antidote. Decolonization are, are material acts and symbolic acts that are taken to dismantle the logics of coloniality, to recenter indigenous communities and indigenous voice in the process, if not first before anything else, destroying white privilege, questioning white fragility in the process of these centuries long colonial relationships creating material changes, educational changes in, uh, in any form possible. That's, uh, that's decolonization. Decoloniality is the overall way of knowing and being decolonial. It's the antidote to coloniality. It's the philosophy. It's the ideology that's longstanding. And so acts are built on top of the ideology and philosophy. Sort of like in the United States, the Black Power Movement. You have Malcolm X, whose documentary right now is out. I don't, it's actually out because I was watching it on Canadian Netflix <laughs> last night. Um, you know, Malcolm X was the prophet and architect of what we know as black nationalism in the U.S. starting in the 60s. The Black Power Movement what were the folks who acted, right? Mm -hmm. So he, he created the philosophy and ideology or supported that, punctuated that. They create, you know, worked through the acts of it, the movement. I kind of see decolonization and decoloniality in those ways. Yeah, but it's highly contested, highly contested topic. And, and oftentimes um, the question of authority and agency and who can engage in, decolonial, in um, decolonization gets questioned too. So how did you get into this field, and, and particularly um, as it relates to sport mascots, um, which we'll get into a little bit more? Um, 
How did you find yourself studying this? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, oftentimes we're told to separate ourselves from what we study, uh, especially in, I'm in, I'm a critical humanist, so it's actually not the case in my field. We're told to get dirty. Um, speaking of Stuart Hall, he said, you know, get into the text, like, get, get in the sandbox, right? Um, and so, but typically we're told, oh, there's scholarly objectivity or separation or distance, something like that. But honestly, I think if you ask most people, even hard scientists, they'll say that there's something personal that pulls them in or something historical to them, their family, their heritage, their experiences. For me, uh, growing up in West Palm Beach, Florida, in the western expanses of Palm Beach County, which is close to Lake Okeechobee, uh, it's a, an orange grove community where I grew up, and it was essentially built on seminal land. Not essentially, it was built and, and colonized, <laughs> built on colonized Seminole Nation land in South Florida. And so there were a number of Seminole folks who still lived in the community, um, built chicky huts, which are traditional housing for Seminole communities, Seminole families, picked oranges out in the orange groves. And so there was always this aura around uh, where I grew up of indigeneity, very blue collar kid with not a lot of critical literacy. So I didn't know what was going on and didn't know for years until I got to college. And I ended up at Florida State University, whose mascot happens to be the Seminoles. <laughs> and I started off as a student journalist covering some of the protests that were going on at Florida State in the 90s. FSU at the time had an amazing football program. Success in sports equals media attention equals opportune time to protest. I mean, that's where you go when you're an activist. You wait for the big moments. The Greeks called it kairos, opportunity. And so I was covering this, uh, these protests as a student journalist and realized that I couldn't write objectively anymore. And I had one of those kind of white reflexive moments where I go, do I throw out my prospects of being a budding journalist, you know, like a uh, steno pad in hand? Um, in order to sort of fulfill the politic that I was seeing and the desire for justice that I was developing as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old in the process. So I gave up writing and I started to march and get invested and get involved. Uh, and the more I talked to people, the more I listened to people, I, um, I got highly invested in the activism itself. And going into grad school, I was doing social change, um, a lot of indigenous work, the mascot controversy seemed kind of a natural fit. And then uh, what really concretized it for me, grad school I wrote about the mascot, but I really got into the mascot once I finished the PhD. And my dissertation was in 19th century native activism in the United States, which really forms the foundation for a lot of activism today. It's kind of kind of cool how it all, how history can, can really connect. Um, but I started to get these mailers as an alum. And they would say, Dear Seminole, join the tribe, contribute to the Alumni Foundation, or from football boosters at FSU would say things like, hey, warrior, you know, come back home to homecoming, which is called powwow at Florida State University. So I'm thinking as a non-indigenous person, clearly settler colonial South Florida, um, none of those words really revolve around my identity and it almost feels dirty for them to broker in native imagery. It was bad enough to be at the university and watching 100,000 people do a tomahawk chop, 100,000 right arms in the air as if chopping at an enemy, right? Uh, connecting their body to violence while stereotyping native folks as violent. But now I'm getting mailers 
telling me that I'm a warrior, telling me that I'm a part of a tribe, telling me that, uh, that I ought to come home for powwow, as if there's a religious and spiritual connection to the university that Native folks have, right, when, uh, when returning each year to homelands and to the bones of one's ancestors. And so anyway, uh, that really got me revved up. So much so that I wrote a first piece that was uh, very critical of Florida State. I actually stopped getting the mailers for a while. <laughs> and I ain't complaining. Now, now they're back because guess what? A new capital campaign started. <laughs> so I think they erased my past sins of the alum. But at any rate, so that was my personal connection into it. And, um, you know, I sort of have had the fortune of listening to a number of, of activists. I went to Maryland for my PhD outside of DC. So I was able to follow the Morningstar Institute and their protests of the Washington NFL team. And really through listening is where I started to formulate questions about how to, uh, how to attend to it. So with so many issues in the news these days and uh, so many seemingly more important things going on, why, why do Indigenous mascots matter? Why, why is it worth digging into this, educating, pushing back? Right, right. It's, um, it's a fair question, and it's certainly a ubiquitous question. It's one I get quite a bit, you know, in the face of things, at least in the United States, um, issues such as increase in diabetes and public health and drug and alcohol abuse, which often these are stereotypes of Indigenous folks in the U.S. and on reservations, I'll call them reserves here. Um, and in the face of things like the Bureau of Indian Affairs not returning money or the U.S. government as a whole not fulfilling treaties, what is this mascot thing about and why does it matter? And I think it matters for a number of reasons. Everything that I just mentioned, which are governmental, historical, and material problems that we're gra and health problems we're grappling with, are imbricated or woven through the mascot itself, right? So uh, public health and personal health, the internalization on the part of indigenous folks when they see this imagery and what that does for self-esteem and what that does for self-worth, that's a public health problem. That's a public health complication. That, that connects with depression, that connects with suicide, suicidal ideation, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, that connects with the, in those ways. And on the other side of it, those stereotypes that are attached to mascots allow non-Indigenous folks to continue to play in the stereotypes, which just further complicates the way that Indigenous folks may see themselves, not just personally, but as a part of a larger public, whether it's the U.S. or Canada. So there's a public health part of it as well. Mascots also, when... Um, when folks see the mascot as representing and almost eclipsing indigenous identity, for instance, in Florida or in the United States, when one can't think of Chief Osceola or the Seminoles in any form except the gross caricature of Chief Osceola on the field atop his horse, beginning of a football game, throwing a flaming spear in a, in a field while people do a tomahawk chop to a song called Massacre. Okay. That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> it's a lot to unpack. And... You know, when that's what people see or understand of the Seminole Nation, then we've got a real difficulty of what happens when reform is on the table? What happens when policies need to be changed? And all people think about is this is playful. Native yeah. Americans disappeared, right? Like in the 1890s after Wounded Knee and after reservation systems were, were you know, firmly in place. Uh, so we can play around with this. So why the heck would we vote to pay money or, or repatriate land or, or something like that? So... Um, what I'm basically saying is that stereotypes through the mascot make make this fun, make this a joke, so that when it comes time for real material change, a larger public is less likely to engage in reform. And honestly, everything is connected. 
right? Mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to colonization, especially when it comes to a history of coloniality. Everything is connected, certainly in Western culture, even more so in Eastern culture, where the idea of, of holism is so firm. But the circle in indigenous communities itself, right? If we respect indigenous voice, we understand perhaps their ontology, their way of being, their life ways where everything is connected. Mascots are connected to larger historical difficulties, are connected to contemporary material problems on reserves and in, on reservations. It's connected with racism, anti-Indianism in the U.S. and in Canada. And at the end of the day, we can handle multiple things as human beings. We can handle multiple issues. I'm watching the debates as we get closer to the presidential election in the U.S. There are at least eight top issues ranging from healthcare all the way to border walls and immigration reform and all the in-betweens. If we're able to handle large and think through large issues altogether, surely we can, surely we can manage multiple parts of a larger problem of coloniality. And what I think about is if the whole goal of our community is to engage in a more perfect union in the U.S. or a more, or a more solid confederation in Canada or what have you, uh, isn't it important to ensure that that's a responsible public and that's a responsible mm -hmm. citizenry? Um, so I, that's how I how I connect it. Everything is, is interlaced in a way. Yeah. yeah. There seems to be this really interesting tension then between the 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 aspects of indigenous life that nineteenth century colonial in particular and and continuing since has sought to destroy, being adopted as these rituals and these fan uh, motifs and that and and that kind of thing. Like, where where does that come from? Like, why? I don't know. It's it's, it's just an observation, and I, and, I, and I'm just wondering if there's if there's kind of more. more yeah. To that. So so more to the way that fans engage and in, in yeah. playing through their mascot yeah. and forming their identity. I mean, this is a, it's a beautiful question, honestly, and it's sociological and it's ideological, right? Um, basically, the way that I come at this, and the way that a number of people do, is that really our identities as groups, whether it's individual groups or national groups or identity-based groups based in gender, race, ethnicity, sexualities, etc., religions especially religion, um, we know each other through symbol making. We know each other through language. What does it mean to be an American? Well, it's a complicated question, but most likely it's going to be things like, I believe in freedom and democracy and liberty, right? I believe in a revolutionary spirit. Um, I respect the flag and everything that it represents. And I celebrate the 4th of July and right, you sort of, these are all symbols. These are all discourses that come together. Uh, there's a, an historian named Benedict Anderson who talked about imagined communities. And the essential point of, of his work is, countries and groups and identities don't grow from the ground or fall from trees. It's all rhetorical. We craft our identities. How does this connect to, to team spirit, if you will? Well. Teams are communities. And so to me, sports is, sports doesn't make community. Sport fandom is community. Community isn't built on top of a team. The team is the community itself and its fandom is the community itself. And so how do people get together and share that community and share their joint identities and then take the joint identities away to their individual lives? Well, ritual. 
the same rhetoric I just talked about. Yeah. Key terms, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? And that could be your, your um, cheer that you do at the stadium. Or I am... I respect the flag and all that it represents. Well, I respect the team colors and the mascot and all it represents, right? So so then when you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan, you're wearing the headdress, you're wearing the jersey, you're putting on the face paint to say, I belong to this correct, community. Correct. This fan community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, fans fans dress up and, um, and assume their rituals, right? at schools and in professional teams that aren't indigenous in scope or indigenous in sort of um, character. Um, the question becomes with building fan identity around indigenous mm -hmm. symbol making and names and visuals and then the performances themselves is, are there any other cultural groups living with a colonial past that are fodder for mascotting? I mean, can you imagine in the United States or anywhere African-American mascots, white people, or at least non-black folk, non-black POC folk even, wearing blackface, right? Mm -hmm. As they go to the New York African-Americans football game that has a caricatured African-American man on a helmet, right? The question becomes, why? Why is it that, that, that we don't have East Asian or South Asian mascots? We don't have, um, as I mentioned, African-American mascots. We don't have Jewish mascots, right? Um, and the answer is multifold. It's multifold and very complicated. But essentially, there it's the idea in the West that we can we can wear Indianness because they've always been seen as other, savage, uncivilized, defeated in war, mm -hmm. in Canada and the United States, and once on reservations and reserves, safely tucked away, that they then become something that you can you can play with. Think about. In the U.S. historically, the Boston Tea Party, which was one of the first really big revolutionary moments of resistance, where the tax on tea was so incredible that a bunch of ragtag American colonists decided to throw tea in the harbor as a protest to the crown. Under the dead of night, they hop aboard a ship and throw the tea over. But oftentimes what's not reported is they dressed as natives. They dress as, yeah. they dress as natives. And you fast forward through and you look at the Wild West shows that happen at the end of the Indian Wars. You look at the Boy Scouts of America and the fact that you're a part of a tribe. Well, now it's a den, but it used to be a tribe. And you get the golden era or the silver arrow. And the ultimate um, ascension you have in the Boy Scouts is Eagle Scout. Eagle being, of course, a religious symbol of indigeneity in North America, right? If not beyond. So we have these, and then mascotting culture pops up. Advertising culture pops up. Land O'Lakes Butter, Red Men Chewing Tobacco, uh, Indian Motorcycles, etc. Hollywood depictions of nativeness as well, oftentimes played by non-Indigenous people. I mean, Sal Mineo, an Italian-American actor in the 50s, right? In early 60s, I believe. He plays, you know, a chief in a, in a, in a Disney movie. Well, that's not a surprise. And so if, you know, Peter Pan or any other Disney movie that brokers an indigeneity, um, so they've always so this uh, this trend has been around, and so people don't think. Oftentimes, they don't think twice about it. They they just engage in that play, and they call it play. It's just a game. It's just sports. It's just on any given Sunday. Well, for you, but what about folks who wear those symbols and wear that identity, and the hot breath of history breathes down their neck every day of their lives? They can't leave the Cleveland baseball stadium and become a white person who's who's easily and safely and in a privileged way folded back in 
they have to live with the stereotypes of savagery and of bellicosity of war and violence that non-Indigenous folks broker in. And so that's, it's very, it's very, very complex um, and difficult to talk to fans about. Yes. For and sure. <laughs> you've uh, noted in interviews before, which we'll link to in our footnotes, that people form really strong attachments with their teams, as we've just been talking about. Um, and it's part of their identity, and that's really difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how can we create a space? How can How can fans engage with these issues without questioning um, their loyalty and their identity with their team. Right. Well, the question I always ask, well, first of all, kind of backing up, um, when I talk to fans of teams with indigenous names, visuals, rituals, I always ask them, are you enamored of the things you put on in the songs that you sing or the chants that you make? Or is it the city your hometown city whose teams you root for, or your adoptive city. I'm a Maple Leafs fan. Uh, not for nothing, because here I am in Ontario, <laughs> but that's just coincidence. Fulbright placed me here. I didn't complain. Um, you know, are you are you enamored of, are you in love with, are you connected to city? Are you connected to a university? Are you connected to your local hometown, your, you know, like craft hockeyville town where, you know, your local ice rink? Or are you, you know, are you more invested in the rituals? And most of them will say, no, I've been a Boston fan my whole life. Like, I'm fourth generation Boston. Or they'll say, yeah, I live in Florida, but I've always been a Lakers fan. You know, like, that's my that's my team. That's my city. Um, or, yeah, I knew all along I was going to go to McGill University. I mean, that's, that's part of my family tradition. I'm a legacy there on that campus, and I knew that was where I was going to go. And to when people are affirmative or are affirming of their love for the city, or for the team, for the franchise, for the university, I ask, well, what happens if the colors did change or the mascot changed? They say they'd be upset. There's no doubt about it. But would you still go to the games? Would you still consider yourself an alum? Would you still be a fan of the Washington football team if the name changed? Well, of course. I've been a fan my entire life. I'm a legacy at that school. I'm a fourth-generation Bostonian, whatever it happens to be. Of course, I'd be upset at first, but I would change. That's the thing. We change as human beings, and our communities change. Think about the way our politics change over time. Think about the ways our policies change over time. The way that we change how we dress. I mean, 10 years ago, I was probably in an emo outfit, for heaven's sake. So, you know, we change the identifiers that circulate around who we are. Um, So... I like to ask those questions. I also like to, it's pretty common to immediately jump to shame people. Now, shaming people who are vehemently pro-mascot is one thing, but for people who may not know, who might not have the critical education. As an 18-year-old, I engaged in, in indigenous play at Florida State University. I didn't know until I listened to people, until I had a chance to understand, had some bandwidth to figure out what I was doing and my place in this larger culture at Florida State University. I like to give people, and maybe it's my own white privilege that I can say I like to give people space, but I do like to give folks a little leeway, which helps to open up their mind to a a potential change. When people feel shame or they're confused or they don't know what to say with regard to race and ethnicity, at least in the United States, I'm not sure how it is in Canada, they shut down. Mm -hmm. And that forecloses honest discussion which is what's powerful about community conversations about things like mascots. So I like to, I like to open that up and, um, and say to them, hey, 
Sounds like you don't mean harm, but let me tell you about the harm that precedes your mascotting and what's happening right now and what happens as a result. You know, you want to see a public health report on suicidal ideation of native kids in America because of mascots? Here you go. You want to see, you know, data on violence committed against indigenous folks? I'll show you that too. You want to see MMIW numbers that link back to stereotypes of native women and, and trans folks in native communities and two-spirit folks in native communities? I'll show you. Non-binary folks too? I'll show you. So um, I like to enter into the conversation that way. And I ask them ultimately as well, is your, is your comfort and play more important than human dignity? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, painting spiritual and time-honored and earned war paint on your face, you know, is that worth it? Is that worth harming another human being? Uh, and most, you know, when you have that conversation, most folks say, oh my gosh, I've never really thought of it that way, you know? And then the ironies too. The irony of, hey, do you know the history of, of indigenous U.S. relations with regard to warfare and religion? Most of them don't. And when you say, well, implements of war were obliterated, right, in the face of the Indian Wars. Religions were banned. Dances, like the sun dance, dances, like the ghost dance, were banned. Wearing braids and feathers were banned. Languages were banned. Names were banned. Names were anglicized. People were sent to schools to be assimilated. And now we're, and now we're doing the same thing, but we're calling it fun? Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So given that indigenous people have been spoken over and spoken to for so long, how does a white person engage in your, your research and in these and in, and in these conversations more more generally um, in a way that's respectful and beneficial sure and I'm gonna be really blunt about this this is something I've grappled with um, for a long time I've been writing on the topic for 18 years and I've been writing about indigenous activism for about that time as well I teach african-american rhetoric I teach critical whiteness theory back home at North, in North Carolina and I've taught that at Alabama which was interesting another story for another time um, and I do this as a cishet, middle-class, educated white person. So privilege in here's, in power in here's, and I understand that. So my, my first response to that is for non-Indigenous folks writing in indigeneity, especially writing in mascotting, is just to shut your mouth for a second and listen. And if you're going to open your mouth after listening, as step one, ask questions. Don't make arguments and statements. Ask questions to indigenous folks. What are the needs? What can I do? Not just as an ally, again, t-shirt, bumper sticker, pay your $25 and you get membership, right? Allyship to me is sort of passive support. Accompliceship is what I like to talk about where you really put yourself on the line. Um, doing this interview, right? I mean, can I ever get a job at Florida State University? Can I ever be invited back to Florida State University? No, I mean, you put yourself on the line when you engage in really controversial, complicated topics. So accompliceship is really important. And so, um, you know, I tell, I, I, the way I see it is, you know, sometimes, and by sometimes I mean all the time, you step back. You can support people by taking a step back and listening and asking, what can I do as an accomplice? What can I do uh, to support you? If you think about the, the sort of idiom of, hey, I got your back. The best way that non-Indigenous folks can have Indigenous folks 
back is by stepping back. You could be aside, you could be right by, you could be side by side with your, your brothers and sisters, right? Um, but take that one half step, if not more, back in order to listen and follow other people's leads. So as an academic, what it means for me, how I translate accompliship, how I translate that idea of shutting my mouth and listening, uh, taking that step back, if not more, is I am very careful about the questions I can ask. I am not in a place politically, historically, we're historical figures in our present, right? And in our futures. I'm not in a space where I can make arguments about intent or authenticity or lock tight, watertight, hermetic, this is how indigenous folks think, act, feel, behave, resist, right? Assimilate whatever the verb happens to be. So asking questions that involve native voice, asking questions that are open enough where the voices that I study answer the questions on their own. And I, as stepping back as an academic, provide a little, a little thread to it and try to, you know, get some coherence and not coherence, like, like intelligibility, but coherence in terms of ordering, a, you know, on a page, right? Um, and so that's what I, you know, that's, that's one of the big parts too. And also admitting our identities as well never trying to be someone who are not, uh, recognizing reflexivity. Um, and then also, and I've really come to this in the past, let's see, when was November 6th, 2016? In that time, <laughs> what, I, what I've really come to the conclusion about is that white folks' role in indigenous circles, if, if First of all, you're invited into a circle, and even if you're not, our role when it comes to indigenous relationships, when it comes to politics, culture, is to teach other white people, other non-indigenous people to, right? I mean, um, I think if you talk to any f folks of color, um, black folks, indigenous folks, they'll talk about exhaustion, mm -hmm. cultural exhaustion with having to teach other white people a history that they ought to already know. And that's a lot to put on people's shoulders. Yes, yes, completely. Um, and that's that's a conversation that, that I know is happening. Um, the idea that white people come collect your white people and uh -huh. educate them right. because people of color, indigenous people, they're trying to survive in some cases and they're they're trying to live and it shouldn't uh, it shouldn't necessarily be all on them. That's, so yeah, that's That's absolutely right. And in terms of um, in terms I'm thinking in the United States in terms of African American communities and indigenous communities. And that's the same same here in Canada, I would imagine, is that there's a recolonization going on. I mean, this is coloniality when you when you expect people who have been marginalized and colonized to have to explain their trauma, have to explain themselves, right? I think about um, the red dress um, art installation that's actually going on on our campus right now. It's going on across the country, especially right before Valentine's Day, I believe is usually the marker mm -hmm. of, of this particular protest or this particular demonstration, sort of artivism, art activism, right? And so dresses and entries representing missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and trans folks too. Don't wanna leave out trans folks for sure. Um, I think about that. And it's okay. Okay. <laughs> what was I saying? Um, I was just thinking. I got so caught up in the. I got so caught up. I saw the installation yesterday, and I was I was just floored. Um, 
Oh yes, I know what I was saying. And this is completely editable, so we. That's can, beautiful. If, so so I'm if, gonna come if back. If you wake up tomorrow and you think, you know what? I'm. Yeah, just <laughs> well, take you, that. You, you just tell let me, me know. If sucks. <laughs> but I will. I will pick up with. Um, Artivism, yes. which is art and activism. Um, I think about how folks have to, it's important to hear people's stories and narratives of trauma, but what it must be like to have to explain that trauma over and over again. And we see mm -hmm. this with the Me Too movement or the, say, Her Name movement or uh, or even I Don't Know More's uh, movement as well. So people have to continue to talk about their trauma over and over and over again. That's a big burden. Yeah. And it's a burden that I can't, understand. I don't have the lived experience. Um, I can be there and I can have people's backs, but I don't understand. I, I can't, I, I don't have an ontological connection in those ways. But one thing I can do is connect with other white folks who are, who may not understand as well and don't get it. And so and who maybe wouldn't listen to those people in the first place, but will listen to you. That's right. That's right. And so, and that's one of the dangers as well. The other side of it, I've heard critics talk about this as well, is that, well, if it's only white people talking to white people, right, or, or non-Indigenous talking to non-Indigenous people, the, the folks you're talking to or alongside, right, that you're trying to educate, will they ever rely mm. on Indigenous voice? Or are they always going to look to you as an arbiter between marginalized voices and what that group of people is thinking or believing, right? The group you're talking to. And so there's a downside, but life is incredibly complicated and culture makes it even more complex. And in, in the face of having to do something now, this is not something where you wait. Mm -hmm. There is no time to wait. Um, whether you're tying that to apocalyptic environmentalism, you know, like, you know, deniers of climate change or whether you're talking about our cultural survival together, right? There's no time. You know, we have little time. Time is fleeting. Yeah. And so in the, in the face of having to do something now, I would rather err on the side of let me go talk to white folks who need education. If the downside, you know, if the downsides unfold, we can work on that as a sub problem or another problem down the line. But someone's got to tell folks right now, someone's got to tell white folks in the U.S. and Canada about murder and missing indigenous women and how we need to be more vigilant in our local communities, how we need to fund material resources more, what we need to understand about it being connected to coloniality and other things that happen, other traumas, other murders, other, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, and so we can't wait on that. We can't wait for another woman or another um, trans person to disappear on a mountain road. Like we can't. And so, and, and we can't wait for more funding for people on or reservations. Or another inquest or another report. Or another report or another inquest or, or more. I mean, these are all important things and they're necessary. Um, but if, if one is to be an accomplice as a non-Indigenous person in this particular space here, um, the topic we're talking about, then you've got to act. Mm -hmm. you know. The history department brought in uh, Dr. Karen Dumel uh, from Winnipeg, who was one of the, um, I, think, I believe it was director of research for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women inquiry um, that I believe it was last year they submitted their final report to the government. And it was really striking to hear her talk about um, the process, um, but also thinking about how we as a society have asked them to offer, have asked the victims, the survivors, their families to offer up their trauma, to tell us their trauma. 
And then the onus is on us to do something with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that still sticks in my mind from her talk was her um, talking about it's not telling what, it's not the the government, it's not white people telling indigenous people what they need to do to fix the problem, but empowering them so that, because they know what they need and they have knowledge that should be used, right. needs to be used and recognized. Absolutely. And um, a while back now in our conversation, we talked about being quiet, listening to people's voices and centering native community and experience first and foremost. This is decoloniality. This is the philosophy, the epistemology, way of knowing, ontology, way of being that we need to center and respect. It's not enough to, to gather people's stories of trauma as if it's a museum as if here we are right back again, anthropologists and taxonomists, uh, you know, figuring out where native people go, right? What bins or categories. It's not enough um, to do that. We, we listen to voices and instead, we should listen to voices and instead of putting a Western lens or a traditional, really European or Anglo lens over how to structure that and understand that, let the voices speak. And I mean, in terms of telling the narrative and then talking about where the needs are, right? Mm -hmm. Stop comparing what people are asking for to what white folks in the past have asked for, or don't use problem solving strategies from 20th century, you know, diplomacy, like European diplomacy to try to figure out how to, how to solve problems in Native America or indigenous Canada. And so it's it's listening to the voices and we need that i mean we need um, there's it's a catch-22 i mean we need the voices we need to hear about the traumas but we need to hear about the survivance too Mm -hmm. what do folks need that balance between victimage and survivance is so incredibly important to social change well i could continue this conversation (laughs) (laughs) i wish we could and continue our sweet tea uh drinking yes thank you for bringing Um, a little bit of home to the table here i appreciate it this is great thank you so much for joining us today and um we may have to check check back in with you um depending how the news cycle goes. That that (laughs) sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. And I mean that in terms of the podcast and our conversation here, but also uh, as a university culture here, um, as a community, really appreciate being here. And as I work on more Canadian Indigenous mascot cases, I would be happy to share what I'm learning, for instance, from Edmonton CFL team debate and from the McGill case and from some local cases in Ontario. So um, I am always happy to come back. Yes. Well, let us know when the next book comes out. Oh, I will. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, and past episodes on our website, brockuca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Khaled Imam. The credits have been read by me, Serena Atella. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for Studio and Web Support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.